0: Welcome to the Forbidden Forest. This is Roe reading Chapter 3 of the Blood Magic series, Untreated. March 10th, 2006. Working as an or as one might expect, was full of danger and intrigue, and Harry had gone right out of Hogwarts straight into training with Ron without a second thought. Not even a year or two to collect his thoughts and reflect on the absolute nightmare that had been his life, not an eighth year, for which so many others had opted, no, he signed up the moment he could, didn't even take his NEWTs. Out of the frying pan and into the fire, so they say." Harry sighed, thinking about it. He had never known a moment's peace, even in those early days when it was supposed to be all fun and exciting and training. And then there they were, showing off their skills and reveling in their fame for being dark wizard conquerors before their twenties even hit he had always thought he would enjoy how experienced he was, how capable, but the truth was more complicated than that. Every spell he cast had memories, even something as simple as Expelliarmus. It was loaded with flashbacks as it rolled off his tongue, gilded with pain and the shattered feeling of having the extra bits of soul inside him pulled away into nothingness, memories and deaths. Sitting at his desk in the ministry, Harry watched as people scurried back and forth between meetings, briefings interrogations and extra training sessions he rolled his quill between his fingers and his right hand and absent-mindedly reached up to rub a scar on his forehead it didn't hurt and it hadn't for years but somehow he still felt like there was a residual feeling something heavy maybe it was just his thoughts this time potter The stern voice from off to his left popped right into his reminiscing, and Harry nearly jumped through the ceiling, his wand out, and the quill snapped and clutched in a bald fist. His heart thudded in his chest, and the prickle of adrenaline flooded through him. It took several seconds before Harry could let his wand fall and gather his thoughts, the pounding of his heart loud and dangerous in his ears. He focused on fixing his posture as to not to appear too battle-ready, appear soft, appear calm, appear approachable. Roberts wasn't even looking at him, his eyes downcast at the pile of folders in his arms, distracted from whatever he was about to say, and apparently oblivious to the tension he had caused. "'Where the fuck is this file? You know I wanted you on that case, tracking down the Lestrange leads we've collected. We've got a few properties we need you to sweep with your team this week.' Harry swallowed with difficulty, his mouth having gone not quite dry but oddly sticky. "'Y'all, make sure to get it done. Ron's been going over the plan and the details with a few of the others.' but we know the drill, sweep the house, dismantle curses, stun anyone we find, it's nothing new. Appear capable, appear ready. Roberts nodded, finally finding the file he was looking for and slapping it down on the desk in front of Harry, not bothering to answer. Harry wondered if it was obvious to anyone else that he wasn't keen on his work, that he hated the idea of still having to track down Death Eaters, still having to fight, still having to dodge jets of green light, At the thought, Harry felt his heart quicken again, and he shoved the thought right back down. He couldn't afford to dwell on that, he told himself, quietly counting the number of shafts of hair along the left side of his ruined quill, until his mind returned to a disinterested blank and his heart didn't feel as though it might escape his chest, appear functional. It had taken longer than usual to calm down, he thought with a dull resignation. He rubbed his eyes and looked at the file below him. Lestrange, what a joy. Ron's voice helped pull Harry out of his ruminating. "'Hey, mate, you coming to dinner tonight?' he asked as he stood to stretch. His cubicle was situated just across from Harry's, though they couldn't see over the divider between them, a design flaw that annoyed Harry to no end. Solitude when seated, uncomfortably close when standing. Harry envied the way Ron seemed so at ease. He had slowly morphed into the cool and confident aura that Harry had always envisioned himself becoming— a visage that was clearly and painfully not part of Harry's foreseeable future. At least he was no longer laboring under the delusion, not like the early days, when he tried so hard to love the work, to feel good about arrests, about dodging death. Eventually, he couldn't ignore how much he hated it, and he resigned himself to just being okay with faking a love, appear happy. Ron, though, he was different, even with all of the struggles, with the twins gone, with his parents barely keeping things together, Ron was an anchor, a lifeline. Across the cubicle, Harry was just there, doing the ministry's bidding, trying not to die in the meantime, holding on to nothing, nothing keeping him grounded, nothing but a mirage. Yeah, of course, Harry replied, his voice more quiet and thoughtful than he had, he had anticipated. Ron gave him a quizzical look and drained the rest of his cold coffee before smiling slyly. You know, Jin's going to be there, and we haven't seen her in a dragon's age. It'll be good to catch up, though, now that I think of it. I'll probably just have to go sit through a rundown of all the hookups she's had this past year, and even if she doesn't, as soon as I get home, is just going to give me a play-by-play of every single new and exciting sex trick she learned from my sister. God, what is wrong with my family? More things to tell the mind healer, I guess. Ron shook the dregs of his coffee cup, his freckled cheeks rounded with a reluctant smile. Harry snorted in acknowledgment. It's true, Ginny and Harry had parted ways at the end of the war with nothing but a hug and the promise to remain friends, and they'd done just that. She'd gone off to play Quidditch internationally and had made quite a name for herself. Off the field, she was finding distraction in every new city she visited, fucking away the memory of the war with reckless abandon, letting the mouths of her lovers wash away the scars of a time and a place best forgotten. She was brutally open about her coping methods. And every time they got together at the borough she gave thrilling renditions of the exciting new ways she had found to scrub her soul of the heaviness they all felt from BDSM retreats in Barcelona that helped her relearn to relinquish control and feel safe to fetish clubs in Helsinki where she experimented with orgies in the snow Ginny was leaving no moment left unlived no corner of herself unexplored Harry sometimes wondered if he had helped push Ginny to this sexually extravagant lifestyle The one and only time they'd gotten the courage up to strip down and make an honest attempt at vaginal intercourse, Harry had struggled to get hard. It was in the weeks after Voldemort's defeat, and while everyone was celebrating and decrying the return to a free and fair wizarding world, he couldn't shake the prickling notion that there was so much left to be afraid of, so much left to fight. He may have mastered the art of appearance, but his cock was disinclined to lie, He found himself constantly transported back to saying goodbye to Ginny at the castle, before he walked off into the forest. He looked at her and he saw a moment he had relinquished his hopes for romance. He had even taken the time to think that Dean would be there to comfort her and hold her after, and that he'd be there to pick up the pieces. He had imagined her moving on and building a life without him. When he looked at her, he replayed those final moments of resignation, and his erection had no interest in staying the course. She had tried to fix things, of course, but even the soft curves of her naked body sliding against his and her eager mouth wrapped around his wilting cock did nothing but convince him that he was unable to experience pleasure. He had survived the war only to look down at the girl he had envisioned himself marrying and having a family with struggled to keep him hard for more than 30 seconds at a time. Eventually, she'd gotten him just a little halfway past direct and climbed on top of him so they could pretend to enjoy the vaginal sex they'd convinced themselves they needed, keeping up with appearances. Happy couples have sex, right? She had looked the absolute picture of how Harry imagined every boy's fantasy, her hips and breasts full and round, her nipples hard and eager for his attentions, which would never come. Harry had winced, Ginny's enthusiastic motions hurting him more than anything, and eventually they just gave up. She had tried to kiss him and promise him that it was okay and that they could try again and asked him what she could do differently, but he was dismissive in the glaring light of his own failings. He cursed himself, he cursed the war, he cursed the fact that he was just 18 and he couldn't get his cock to work. He had gotten up from the bed, dressed in a hurry, and did his best not to slam the door on his way out as a profound rage boiled inside him. He was never sure if Ginny cried or not afterwards, but he wouldn't blame her if she did. He had wanted to cry, desperately, he wanted to fall into the arms of someone who understood his confusion, his loss, his terror, that his future would hold no pleasure, that there would be no one for him to share his affections, but he had no one and that was that. Instead of crying, he stormed out of the burrow, his magic breaking a dish in the sink behind him and he apparated to an empty moor from his year on the run where he lay in the dew-covered grass and tried to cool the burning rage that threatened to consume him. He stayed there that night, his anger at himself, at the world, keeping him awake as he stared into the shadowy clouds drifting across the night sky, a lazy, peaceful sight that filled him with a deep and gnawing envy, until, that is, he finally succumbed to a fitful and clenched sleep under no one's gaze but the northern constellations. Although he had returned to the borough the next morning and apologized, Their relationship never recovered. He had spent months ruminating over his failure, filled with a sense of dread that somehow, after everything he had been through, something inside him was broken. He was broken, deeply and profoundly. Harry didn't want to judge Ginny now. She was just doing her best to forget, to move on, to exchange the years of fear for years of pleasure. And who was he to say he knew any better how to heal the wounds of the past? He let the thoughts of his failed romance linger as he stroked the feathered tip of his broken quill. He had never lost the anger after that night, after the war, really, it stalked him relentlessly, always just below the surface, like a persistent ringing in his ears, invisible to everyone save him. Harry had never tried to fuck anyone after that ever again. After dinner, catching up with the Weasleys, where Ginny predictably updated them all on her extensive exploits and Bill and Charlie both flew called to say hi and send their love, Harry was exhausted. He loved his family. He did. He found it so tiring to go through the motions of being happy, though, of laughing at jokes, smiling at his friends. Even hugging Molly and Arthur drained him. All of these motions felt hollow with the external Harry laughing while internally he wondered how anyone could stay living in this house with all of the terrifying memories that haunted it, haunted him. Fred and George's room was just upstairs, literally hanging over their heads. It was in this house that he had heard Bellatrix taunting him, heard the cracks of apparition as Death Eater swarmed surrounding them, the house where he'd learned he'd be a failure at making love. Harry had to shake his head and push down the rising feelings of panic, of loss. Hermione looked at him across the table and he just shrugged, smiling. He registered the motion as a lie, much like his behavior at the weekly dinners. He was faking happiness for them, and it left him feeling as empty and numb as ever. Every now and then, he looked across the table and caught Molly's vacant eyes, sometimes brimming with tears, but she would smile quickly and shake it off as soon as she caught him staring playing the same game he was, sitting across a table but too distant for them to share in the reality of their pain together. Appearances, appearances for everyone's comfort but their own. After picking apart a treacle tart he barely tasted, listening to Molly practically beg Ron to get on having grandchildren already, Harry apparated back to the tiny garden flat behind Ron and Hermione's four-bedroom house. It was just one room and a bathroom with a tiny kitchen in one corner, but he didn't need more space than that. He'd been living here the last few years and he never really wanted for more. He no longer had big dreams of a family where he'd need more bedrooms. Hell, he didn't even have dreams of sharing his life with a partner. He had enough lies on his plate, thank you very much. His one bed and one reading chair, cupboards with instant noodles, they were enough for him. Every now and then he told Hermione he had plans to renovate Grimald Place and move back in there, but he knew it was another lie. He wondered if they would ask him to leave ever, or if they'd just let him waste away in the single room in the shadow of their happiness. Most of the time he enjoyed living so close to Ron and Hermione. It often helped him hedge away the loneliness that filled his nights, but sometimes sometimes he looked up at their big family home and their holding hands and the laughs they shared with each other and... He had to bite back the horrid rush of jealousy that threatened to consume him. He had given so much. He had been so selfless. Why couldn't he feel something close to that happiness? Why had he fought so hard for this? For what? Harry sighed, slipping into the bed and casting a silencing charm, sealing his little garden flat tight like he did every night. All these years later, and it was all too often, he still woke himself screaming, sheets wrapped around his ankles, desperately grasping for his wand, the terror just as fresh and real as ever. That Friday was Auror Pub Night. Actually, every Friday is Auror Pub Night. Like clockwork, they leave the office and head to the pub, get drunk and celebrate whoever's locked up someone big and bad recently. Every week, Harry gets the routine shoulder slap and, see you at pub night, Harry. Usually, with finger guns from one, two, sometimes three different coworkers, Harry always smiles and laughs, confirming his attendance with a thumbs up, hating the sick ritual and the fact that he's not even sure of the people's names who are asking him. They only want him there because let's be clear, Harry is a fun drunk, he's funny and charming, and is the first to come up with cheers or jeers, bar games, silly pickup lines. Externally, Harry is the picture of a fun workmate, a good-time guy, and gods they love him for it. Internally, Harry spends the whole time chasing the relief that alcohol brings. He needs distraction from what's happening in his mind, the shudder of panic each time the door pub opens and a stranger walks inside, the flickering images in his peripheral vision, ghosts of villains and heroes, both. Every shot he drinks is an attempt to escape, a layer of protection against his own reeling thoughts. He hates the crowds, hates the smells, the touching of strangers as they move past him, trusting nothing and no one to be benign. This week, when he shows up at the bar to a round of cheers and offers of shots, Harry grins and feigns his delight, like always, but as soon as they look away, he's following Ron to their usual booth, and his grin has dropped, replaced with a grimace. He downs two tots of fire whiskey in quick succession, feeling especially raw, waiting for the stiff drink to push the weight on his shoulders aside. For a room full of people who are trained to pick up on the subtleties of behavior, Harry is shocked that no one has noticed just how miserable he is. This routine is just as much of a farce as his weekly dinner at the Weasleys, just... This time he has endless rounds of whiskey bought by his many fans and admirers to fuel the desperate need he has to numb himself, to dial back the wretchedness, the constant choking dread that this is the summation of his life. In the midst of an inane discussion of Quidditch that Harry couldn't care less about, he clings to a moment's courage and interrupts Ron to ask, Ron, do you think I'll ever be happy? Ron laughs, startled and counters, only if the Harpies take the title this year. I can't imagine how much of a sore loser you'll be if they fuck it up. Their best chance is in nearly a decade, and a seeker to rival Crumb back in the day. I can't pretend the cannons have a shot, really, so I'm willing to put myself out there and root for your team. Just this once, though, as my favor to you. Ron grins stupidly and gets up to grab another round from the bar, while Harry seethes inside. He feels ignored, rejected, minimized, and it stokes the anger that has become his constant companion. His magic sparks in response and shatters the shot glass in his hand. No one notices him over the noise and chaos of Auror Pub Night, and Harry watches the blood sleep slowly from a gash in his thumb before whispering a healing charm. He doesn't try honesty with Ron again that night, nor any other night after. Instead, he gets as drunk as he can before letting Ron drag him home collapsing on his bed, not even changing out of his clothes. In the night, he wakes to his screams, which quickly transform into sobs as consciousness takes hold. He cries until his throat is raw and his eyes feel nearly swollen shut. He dreamed about the fiend fire, the heat of the flames and the burning of the soot and ash standing out vividly in his mind, but he couldn't remember much else. He didn't think that's why he had broken down, though. No, that was the loneliness. In the morning, after Harry rinsed off the grime of pub night, he stood, his head hanging below the stream of near-boiling water, his dark hair hanging down around him, unmoving. His hangover was brutal, but he didn't have the energy even to go ask Hermione for a potion to quell the merciless pounding of his headache. He didn't have the energy for anything, really. He closed his eyes and brought his forearms up against the cool tile of the shower wall and leaned his forehead between them. His shoulders shook as sobs came again, hidden this time by the water falling all around him. This time, it was the emptiness. He didn't know how long he stood there under the water, drowning out his despair. When he got out, he wrapped a towel around his waist and padded into the kitchen for coffee. Not for the first time, Harry added a healthy dash of whiskey in his mug to help him get through the day.
1: So that was a heavy chapter.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah the roots of why or how he starts this sort of spiral mm. that we see in the last chapter. Yeah. So this is two years mm. earlier. And um, yeah, kind of, kind of the impetus of how addiction can build and get out of control. And it's not usually a, a fast... I mean, it can be. Mm. It can be very fast. But more often than not, it's this like, slow erosion of coping and and reaching out and using things that aren't healthy coping mechanisms, like alcohol. I mean, Mm. it's probably the first thing that most people go to because it's so widely available and so socially acceptable. Mm. Um, Yeah, and that scene of Aura Pup Night always gets me because... It gets me. (laughs) Yeah. That I very much wrote from, like, my perspective Mm. too because I'm definitely the fun drunk Mm. and, like... I think I'm, like, a fun-loving person, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and, like, alcohol obviously exacerbates or, like, Mm -hmm. unmasks that or whatever, or or encourages it. Um, And I didn't realize until I had been sober for very many years that, like, I'm actually a fun person no matter what, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm very funny and entertaining, (laughs) and I just... I agree with that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Like, not to sound like an asshole, but... I very much find myself like sort of the life of the party, mm-hmm. but I don't actually need alcohol to do that. All I need is to feel like I like the people that I'm with yeah. and that I'm happy, and that I'm enjoying and like you're myself. Not pretending, yeah, which is what
1: Harry's doing in this entire chapter.
0: No, completely. And I think, yeah, not pretending is a big thing. Not mm-hmm. having to lie. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's another big theme that I've talked about so much in sobriety is that you know lying and dishonesty. It feels awful. Yeah, I mean it just. I cannot lie about anything. Mm. So when
1: you're like in an environment with people, you feel like you have to lie to, to maintain.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It really sucks. Mm. And I found that in various, and it's not even just behaviorally, but like, you know, not being entirely honest Mm. that like I am the way I am. Yeah. And it has a lot of intersections, I think, with, you know, how people feel when they lie about any part of their identity, whether they are, you know, in the closet and they're queer and they Mm. can't come out to people because they don't feel safe. Yeah you know, that, that intense dishonesty about yourself
1: and what you need. Like who you are on a fundamental level.
0: Yeah. It really erodes a person yeah. and it feels horrible. Just awful. Yeah, it does. So writing that, I, I tried to encapsulate how it appears as such like a fun environment. Mm. And like what so many people would say is like a good, good night time. out. Yeah. yeah. Good time with your friends. Ron probably loves it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> he has no idea what's going on. Oh. Um, but yeah, it can be, if you're not if you're not enjoying it, and you're not able to say yeah. you, you don't enjoy it, then mm. it's a horrible experience. Yeah.
1: What I find interesting too is like um like in my chapters, I talk a lot about functional anxiety, and this mm. sounds so much like functional depression mm. in that same way um that like he's unable to talk to his friends about it, and nobody notices because. Mm you know when, when you're functionally depressed and you have all of these issues it's so easy to mask that
0: yeah it's really yeah. easy to just be like yeah i'm great I'm how are you a good time yeah no everything's great at home yeah. meanwhile <laughs> meanwhile like, you're
1: yeah. crying in the shower <laughs> yeah
0: exactly yeah and i i tried to convey mm-hmm. that i think yeah. yeah i
1: think that definitely came across and well, i think it's like it, it's 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 a it's an interesting foundation to start with to see like Oh, how this is like his starting point like we know canonically his starting point but now like from here yeah. and how he gets from you know this chapter the second chapter of Harry's to the first chapter that you wrote like mm.
0: I think also like it yeah we know his starting point Well, we know how the war ends yeah. but I think people forget a lot of times you focus on recovery like immediately afterwards yeah. like you would rebuild a building yeah, sort yeah. of like okay now it's fixed voila yeah
1: Beautiful, but human,
0: human beings are not like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, processing trauma, people go through the stages of processing trauma. And one of those stages is what a lot of people do is, is I can't deal with that right now. I'm avoiding it. Yeah. I, I'm not talking about it. It's in a box in my subconscious somewhere and I'm not touching it. Yeah. And that's, that's a coping mechanism that is actually quite helpful. Mm. And it allows for survival while you're not able to mm. unpack the horrible yeah. box and i think you know you can imagine harry having the box somewhere in the back of his mind it's a mind. big box <laughs> yeah and then but you know years going by yeah. or training you know all of this stuff he's he's still got on his to do list mm-hmm. getting the job you know until finally he has a moment to stop and be like am i okay yeah what is what is my life mm-hmm. and so that's kind of where i wanted to start
1: yeah Meanwhile, all this time is going by and the box is getting bigger.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just like more difficult to open. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What did you think about um, how we discussed Ginny?
1: I think it's really interesting because it's, it's almost like if on a face value, it seems like she's living her best life. Mm. And I think when you really sit and think about it, it seems really pathological what she's doing.
0: Yeah, you know, it certainly can be pathological. Yeah, it can be pathological.
1: Yeah. Not that like everybody who has like a sexually extravagant lifestyle is pathological. But right, like...
0: but it is coping, and it's using mm. pleasure and escapism to yeah. cope. And on one hand, if you're doing that in a healthy way, fine. Mm. But it can morph into pathology really quickly and yeah. really easily. Um, and I think I talk... So often, people don't talk about the intersection between addiction to substances Mm -hmm. which are basically dopamine producing things in our brain that Mm -hmm. drive us to seek dopamine yeah but sex does the same thing yeah and we talk about that later which I mean I maybe we should hold off on the discussion until then but and it's usually something later on people realize in recovery because sex is so far lower down on your Mm -hmm. like to-do list of sorting things out usually you know if you are the person who's overdosing like You're not worried about
1: having a healthy sex life right now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You're not worried about how how you feel about your orgasms. Like Mm -hmm. that's not on your register. Mm -hmm. Um and it's usually something that comes up years later and is either ignored or not talked about well in recovery, I found. So I think I tried to maybe compare and contrast a few Mm -hmm. things. Um
1: and yeah, we didn't go into Ginny's story, really. No, not very much. Yeah, We've she's kind of like touched on it a few times.
0: Very a background character. But what do you think about um, Harry's inability to have sex?
1: Or hit? I think, yeah, Yeah, I think it's interesting because there's so much there. And I mean, yeah. obviously, like, we start getting into it later on. Mm. But, like, initially, like, the first thing that I would think of is just, like, you are carrying so much trauma. Yeah. Like, why are you trying to push yourself into this idea of, like, having sex? Like, happy couples have sex, right? Yeah. And, like, you know, teenagers. You're supposed to be interested in sex, mm-hmm. and this whole other, I mean, roller coaster of emotions kind of gets in the way of that. And instead of like honoring that and being like, I'm just really fucked up right now, and like sex is not on the table. You know, push yourself through.
0: Yeah, and they have a complete lack of communication about yeah, it. And absolutely. he just feels guilty that he, she feels bad, and then he has yeah. to leave. Yeah, and on Avoidance. one hand, yeah, on one hand, that is. Like, I feel like that's a really relatable thing because we all do that. And feeling
1: insecure and feeling, like, embarrassed.
0: Yeah. But at the same time, I also wanted to give a nod to, like, you know, a lot of times when you're processing things or Mm -hmm. you have immense amounts of stress, anxiety, Mm -hmm. like, you know, this – the amount of things he has to reckon with coming away from the war or even just his own misery – like, that doesn't really give your brain space to engage in sex. Yeah. Like, your brain is not going to be happy and relaxed and, mm-hmm. like, you know, interested. Yeah. And it's almost more likely that you will develop a more pathological relationship with
1: yeah. sex. Yeah, definitely.
0: So, yeah like I tried to open the door there and obviously it's something we're going to discuss a lot
1: yes (laughs) dysfunctional sex is like a major theme (laughs) yeah
0: Yeah, you think this is about addiction and recovery it's actually just about like (laughs) intimacy and pleasure yeah which
1: obviously are huge parts of definitely being a human being Mm -hmm. um yeah is there anything else you want to add Mm, no I think that's everything
0: yeah, there's not much in yeah. these chapters other than like the absolute misery and loneliness yeah, definitely. and mm. get ready for more of that.
1: Yeah, get ready. <laughs> Chapter 4 up
0: next. Yep.